2: your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell.
3: Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for taking the time, the most precious thing you have, to spend a little time with us. And We're going to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, try to get to the information that we actually need to discern the times we live in a little bit better and try to do something productive with this thing, not just give in to all the caterwauling and nonsense going on out there. There's quite a bit of it. We've got some interesting things we want to cover on the show today. Our guest is Rachel Chu, good friend, been wanting to have her on the program for a while, finally got it done. She's writing about an initiative and a proposed law out in California on how not to help local print media and news media outlets. This is something that We've talked about before, on top of the other things I do, I also write a column for a local paper in West Virginia, the Fayette Tribune. I'm happy to do that. I'm pleased to do that. I want to support local media and local print media. They're struggling. This is an example of how not to help media, and it'll actually create more problems than solutions. We'll talk to Rachel Chu about that in a little bit later on. Also, Zoom, the company that is um, eponymous for being the work-from-home company, has ordered all its work from home, folks, to stop doing that and come back to the office. We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Also, a great story out in California where Guy Fieri bought a hog, not just any hog. This pig had a purpose, a very good purpose, as a young man tries to raise money for his little brother, battling a dreaded disease. Great story. To end on a good note, like we always try to do, uh, but first... Uh, Let's go back to the Trump indictments, and I know we got to specify because there's three of them, and if the events in Fulton County, Georgia are any indication, there's probably going to be another one here forthwith pretty soon, or at least batch of indictments, but the uh, Trump attorney, uh, John Laro, did what's called the full ginsburg this past sunday he went on all the sunday talking head shows now as you know if you follow me i have a standing rule i don't watch the sunday talking head shows it's all regurgitation it's a waste of my time sunday is a darn fine day for family and farmer's market and going to church if that's your thing and whatever else sundays are not for talking heads saying everything we've already known however i made an exception We put a uh, post up at Ordinary-Times.com. We will link to it in Substack Notes. Make sure you're subscribed to free to the Substack, .substack Hertel.Substack.com. And you can watch a clip from each of those programs. All the major networks had him on. One of the things being claimed about the January 6th portion of the indictment, that's the latest one from the Jack Smith investigation, into the events surrounding January 6th. And it was repeated by this Trump attorney over and over again that Donald Trump was exercising his free speech. Donald Trump can say whatever he wants about the election. He can even lie about the election if he wants to. That portion of what the lawyers said is absolutely true. How do I know it's true? Jack Smith says it's true. Now, we posted it at ordinary-times.com. I'll link to it. The indictment, you need to read it for yourself. You did read it for yourself before commenting on it, right? I mean, we have presidential candidates commenting on it, and they always, well, I didn't read the indictment, but if you didn't read the indictment, you don't know what's in the indictment. You're taking somebody else's word for it. You're assuming. You're just regurgitating what somebody else said. Don't do that. Read these documents. They're PDF. You can even search them. So how do I know that Donald Trump can lie about things, can say things that are not true about the election, but that lying when it goes to actions can cross over into criminal territory jack smith says so since some of y'all did not read it so those of you in overflow that couldn't get into service i'm going to read the first portion of this indictment right now it's a very plain spoken language uh and again we're linking to it read the whole thing introduction the defendant donald j trump was the 45th president of the united states and a candidate for re-election in 2020 the defendant lost the 2020 presidential election Go ahead and how, MAGA folks. It's true. The indictment continues. Quoting from the indictment. Despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following election day on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there have been outcome determinative fraud in the election that he actually won. These claims were false, and the defendant knew they were false. But the defendant repeatedly and widely disseminated them anyway. Again, I'm reading from the indictment itself. This is Jack Smith and his team writing this. Jack Smith signed this document, so this is his words with his name on it. To make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration in the election. None of that is debatable to anybody who watched any news in the last few years. Listen to this part. Remember, Trump's defenders, Trump himself and Trump's attorney saying he's allowed free speech about this incident. He's allowed to even lie if he wants to. That's all covered by free speech. Listen to what Jack Smith says, quoting, the defendant has a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and to even claim falsely that there have been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such by seeking recounts and audits of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits, challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, the defendant did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. Almost 70 cases, by the way, that were all failed. That's Jack Smith agreeing with John Lauro on TV on Sunday and agreeing with Donald Trump. He can lie about the election. He can say whatever he wants about the election. Here's where things change. Item four on the indictment. Again, I'm quoting from the indictment shortly after election day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subsur- subverting the election results in doing so, the defendant perpetuated three criminal conspiracies. And I'm going to, I'm going to, um, compress this a little bit a, consp- one, a, a conspiracy to defraud the united states by using dishonesty fraud deceit to impair obstruct and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential elections are collected counted certified by the federal government in violation and it gives the u.s code b a conspiracy to corrupt obstruct and impede the january 6 congressional proceedings at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified, the certification proceedings in violation of, and again, it gives federal code. C, a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted in violation of the federal code. Quoting from the indictment again, each of these conspiracies, which built on the widespread mistrust the defendant was created through perversive and destabilizing lies about the election fraud, which Jack Smith already said he's entitled to do, targeted a bedrock function of the United States government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The allegations contained in paragraphs one through four, that's what I just read, of this indictment are allegedly and fully incorporated here by reference. And he goes on to go into deep detail. That's how an indictment works. There's an introduction. It's like an outline. And then it goes into the details. Donald Trump's argument and his surrogate argument, That this is an election fraud and a free speech case that he's caught indictments on are just not true. How do I know? Because Jack Smith opened the indictment saying he had a right to lie about the election. He had a right to say whatever he wanted about the election. As all Americans do, free speech covers lying. Free speech covers untruths. Free speech covers you saying just about anything you want to say. However, it does not cover your actions. And the indictment is for the actions taken based off the words that he said. See that difference? It's an important difference. This is an indictment. This is not the trial. This is not judge, jury, and execution. Donald Trump is going to get his day in court to defend his actions. But the narrative that he's been arrested and he's been indicted and he's being persecuted for free speech just is not so. Because the indictment opens saying he had a right to do all that. And then he took a course of action that went beyond that and went into fraud and went into conspiracy. Is he guilty of that is what's going to be determined in the course of this case. Keep things that are different, different. They're going to try to say that Donald Trump had a right to do all this based on free speech. But your free speech does not cover your actions if it crosses into conspiracies and fraud, which is what's being alleged. Donald Trump is presumed innocent until proven guilty, and he will get his day in court. But when folks are saying that, ask them if they read the indictment, because the very first thing in this indictment is Jack Smith agreeing with John Laro and Donald Trump and the Legion of the MAGA faithful who are now saying this is a free speech case. And then he says, you are entitled to that free speech, but then you went further. And then there's 42 more pages of this indictment that allege what Donald Trump did that crossed from free speech into criminal activity. This stuff is all laid out. You can read it for yourself. You don't have to guess. You don't have to assume. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. Read it for yourself. And that way, when the narratives come hot and heavy, you'll know what's true and what is not. And when these trials start, you'll be prepared for the discourse to come. More herd tell right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the herd tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman. But you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. So you might have heard tell that working from home has become something of a thing. Of course, we also did school from home, but that's another matter for another day during COVID. Let's go to the national news in business. This is interesting because the company that's name became synonymous with working from home, school from home, business from home, Zoom, video communications, the tech company, not just the app is ordering all its work-from-home workers to stop doing that. To get into the piece, Alvin Cabral writing in In Business, Zoom Video Communications, which was at the forefront of the remote working revolution during the coronavirus pandemic, is telling its employees to report to the office on a more regular basis. Staff at the San Jose, California-based company who live within 80 kilometers. Why are they using kilometers, number one? I know it's the People's Republic of California, but come on. Eighty kilometers from a Zoom office are now required to work from there at least twice a week, Business Insider reported, quoting a company representative. Quote, we believe that a structured hybrid approach, meaning employees that live near an office need to be on site two days a week to interact with their teams, is most effective for Zoom, said the representative. Zoom has not released any statement regarding the apparent decision. The move is a U-turn from Zoom's stance last year when it said fewer than 2% of its entire workforce would work remotely. Remote work rose to prominence during COVID-19 and was part of the change companies had to adapt to stay afloat. And with work-related technology, most notably video conferencing, which is not new but was of great use during the crisis, improving and more widely available, the situation has highlighted that work and other activities can be done remotely. Zoom found itself at the forefront thanks to its easy-to-use and flexible platform. Let's pause here. Remember, there's also questions about its security, whether it could get into an out. We'll rehash that some other time. But just remember, these things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. And all this came to a head during the COVID mess. Back to the piece. The word Zoom also became a verb for video conferencing. Technology played a key role in advancing the use of remote work with companies, especially cloud service providers, telecom operators, and other tech-focused organizations. Boasting and boosting either or. Their offerings to support the growing demand for digital services. Remote working has also brought a number of benefits to the forefront, including work-life balance, less commuting, local independence, increased productivity, monetary savings, and according to U.S. company FlexJobs, a lot of people like it. However, there have been disadvantages. This week, a study from MIT and the University of California, LA, that'd be UCLA for those of you from Logan, found that workers randomly assigned to work from the home full-time are 18% less productive than those in the office. The researchers who studied newly hired data entry worker in India who were randomly assigned, remember this word, randomly assigned to either the home or the office, said two-thirds of the drop in productivity was evident from the first day of work. It is also a bane for the office space market in major cities, which is at risk of losing $800 billion by 2030 as vacancies rise and people are opting for remote or flexible work assignments to study from McKinsey & Company. Showed last month. The estimate for those lost translations into a decline of more than a quarter compared to pre pandemic levels in 2019, with a worst case scenario showing it could spiral as much as 43%. However, as the pandemic has subsided and has been declared over by the World Health Organization, which, by the way, made it 20 times worse because of their uh, dependency on China, but we'll rehash that some other time, companies have been encouraging their employees to return to the office and resume the pre pandemic professional life that's the end of the piece let's discuss this for a second because here's the problem this crosses again a lot of streams besides just what the piece is about there's no such thing as the pre-pandemic professional life anymore everybody went through the pandemic and it affected and changed them it changed how they saw work their companies and how they acted and treated their employees during the pandemic told the employees what their companies actually thought of them Let's go back for just a second because this MIT study, I've got highly questionable stuff. Not that it was malfeasance or anything, but they said randomly assigned people to work from home. Not everybody can work from home. Being able to work from home is a skill set, just like being able to function in a high-tempo office environment and having the people skills to do so, that is also a skill set. And you don't have to have both. Now, people that have both will excel, but not everybody has both. This is part of what was revealed by COVID, folks are finding out that companies aren't as flexible as they could be and companies' leadership is not as good as they should be in letting people find their best slots. This should be an all of the above thing, not an either or thing, because not everybody can work from home and not everybody can function really well in an office. And the smart companies are going to figure out a way to manage both of those things. There's an underlying thing here, and we're going to look into this a little bit more. I got somebody I want to talk to about it for the program. I also might want to write about this. If you look at how a lot of these tech companies especially, but a lot of corporate structures one of the things that happened during COVID with people going remotely is supervisors and managers no longer knew how to supervise, lead, and manage, not just to get the product done or the job done or what was going on in the moment, but they lost their ability to know how to make themselves look good so they could get promoted as well. We've covered in other stories how there's this busy work problem in tech right now because people in the upper levels of management are presenting their own cases for their own advancement based on how many people they manage and how many meetings they have and things like that. And whether they actually accomplish anything or not doesn't really get factored into it. That's not healthy. That also bleeds down into these work from home and other situations. If you're just sitting on meetings on Zoom all day, you're not really accomplishing everything. No, the work environment in office isn't perfect. No, the work-from-home situation isn't perfect, but it's also the post-pandemic reality and the companies that are going to succeed, and by the way, the government's having this problem too. They got to work on this as well, plus other people. Some kids want to stay online school. A lot of people that had online school hated it, want to get back in the building. All of us are going to have to adapt to this new reality. The smart companies will adapt to it. The smart families will prepare their children for the world that we live in, where they're going to have to have a skill set for remote work, interviewing, talking online, things like this. Start preparing your children. Start preparing yourself. This is just the reality we live in. But it's very, very interesting when the company that was synonymous with the trend of working from home and school from home wants their people back in the office. Just remember, it's not just about that. It's about their bottom lines. It's about business. It's about a lot of cross streams, like many nor- stories in the news and why we talk about turning down the noise. Talking about the real estate of businesses, talking about the taxes of businesses, talking about the heads of those companies trying to figure out a way to make sure they look good to their bosses to rise on up. And then there's the company themselves and the products trying to stay ahead and make a profit. A lot of moving parts to these things. Don't get caught up in it, but be aware this is just the world we live in now. More tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to tell. Okay, here's one of those folks I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. We keep talking about it. Finally got it done. We got Rachel Chu on the program. Excited to see her. Young Voices contributor. She's working at the Committee for Justice, which we're going to get into in a minute. She's got a long list of writing accolades. Really sharp. Always enjoy chatting. Now we get to do it for the program. Rachel, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks so much. It's great to chat with you.
3: Yeah, I like this piece. You're writing in real clear markets about... <laughs> Let's back up for a second because I want to set the environment up because I think this is a real problem. This is something I'm somewhat personally invested in. I think it's bad for the country. I think it's bad for the media business. And I think it's bad for journalism. And I think the solution that the state of California is trying to do is going to make it all worse. But let's back up. We all know what's happened to the print news industry, newspapers specifically. We know that you go digital or you die. We understand that. But... And I'm somebody that writes for a local paper. I do a column for a local paper as part of my writing. So I, I believe in local papers and local news media outlets, but they've got to evolve. But California has done their California thing where they go, oh, let's come up with a really crazy regulatory scheme to try to fix something that naturally evolved. Is that a good way to give the background on what this piece of legislation that you're writing about is doing? Because it's, if I just took it in a vacuum, it sounds kind of weird, but building up that way, is that a good way to put what's going on here?
4: I think that's a great uh, summary of what's been going on. Um, just to backtrack a little bit further, newspapers um, have had a lot of issues over the past few decades when it comes to trying to innovate. And we've seen in the past, um, 50 years ago, um, actually a little bit more than that, um, newspapers were at risk of being displaced by televisions, because that was the primary way people were starting to get their news. And we saw a bill proposed and passed back then, didn't work out. We actually see similar iterations of the same sort of bill, which is to either carve out um, a loophole from antitrust laws for newsrooms, or to have some other scheme which transfers money from a disfavored company to the newsrooms and so we see a lot of these different legislative proposals aimed at um apparently trying to protect local newspapers, but in the end, that's never what any of these um, pieces of legislation ends up achieving. Um, That's exactly what we see in California. There is a bill um, that that was proposed this year um, called the California Journalism Preservation Act. Um, It has since been held Until next year, which is a good sign, Um, the authors of the bill realize that there are major issues with their proposal and are trying to see how they can fix it. I'm not sure if they can, but um, to sum up, this bill um, would have an arbitrator um, calculate a percentage of the advertising revenue that um, online platforms like Meta and Google receive and transfer that over to newspapers or media outlets um, with with without regard for the size of the organization. Um, so we see that this is a proposal that, like many others, is simply rent-seeking. Um, it's transferring again profits from a disfavored company to one um, that the government feels is more valuable.
3: Yeah. And we're going to link to her whole piece in Real Clear Markets. You can read the whole thing. This is not a unique idea to what California is doing. Um, Australia has a model, a news media model for this. The EU has played around with similar ideas, although they haven't widespread spectrum like this has. This has actually been in some local and state level in a couple different places. This is something that Meta, when it was still Facebook, way back in the beginning of Facebook, actually dealt with and it kind of died off and now it's back again. This is not a new idea. The idea, and again, I'm, I'm open to the suggestion of the idea, but the government going in and changing who gets what distribution for online content for a print medium. That's what we're really talking about. This gets into a legal area that we hear a lot about when it comes to websites that kind of gets abused. It's become kind of the hip of like, what is and isn't a publisher? Who publishes a big deal here? Because that gets to the heart of the legal part of this is if you publish in one media, Can the government come in and say, "Okay, you're going to transfer that content and the monetization thereof to this whole other platform? That's where this gets real sticky and icky in a big hurry legally, isn't it?
4: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think something else, too, um, along the same vein that the government really misses with these types of proposals is that while the news links provide a benefit to the online platform, the online platform also has a benefit for the newsrooms. It's it's giving them an opportunity to disseminate their articles widely. Um, That's something that perhaps would have been more difficult uh, beforehand. And so um, when the government steps in and tries to dictate the granular way in which these businesses conduct their business. Um, Ultimately, it just doesn't work out. And when we see these proposals as well, we see a clear bias towards one side and to say that one side provides all of the value in which which is not the case. And like you mentioned, there's so many different legal issues that compound upon this, it's not simply, oh, let's just let big tech right pay for the local newsrooms.
3: Right, Rachel Chu joining us. That's the entire point here. Is I you could get in the weeds in this really quick, but let me let me tackle it this way. You make content as a writer, as a newspaper, as a website. The um, I'm under I understand the argument because I use it. I do it with my work. I put my stuff on social media, and you hope other people put it out there. You send it to somebody. Hey, can you boost this for me? That's not monetization in and of itself, but it leads to that. So I understand that argument. The other problem you have is the market has kind of decided that newspapers are not doing well because of their business model. And it's not really necessarily even bad management. It's just the business model, the advertising, print media. It just can't keep up with the digital. Now, some newspapers have evolved and figured. Some go to weekly things, Washington Post, New York Times. They turn profits because they've become more specialized. How do we talk about that in a better way? Because you hear, here's what happens with these things. Let's just go big picture for a second. Here's this problem. Everybody goes, oh, no, that's a shame. Newspapers are dying. Let's go fix it. The problem is when you go to write the black and white of the wall, let's go fix it to something that was dying for a reason. And although it's kind of bottomed out and look again, I write for a local paper for purpose. I believe in the medium. I think it's important. But that let's do something about this problem that sounds bad. You have to put this stuff in black and white. And when you start talking about subsidizing something with something else in black and white, now you've gotten into a whole nother area besides just fixing that initial problem. That's a real hard way to explain it. You're smarter than me. Explain it in a better way than I just did.
4: I mean, I think you did a very good job. And I want to go back to um, something you said at the beginning, which is the evolution, right? That um, these industries need to evolve with the <clears throat> with the changing times. And we see these proposals are making it difficult for them to do so because it's creating this um, legal landscape that is very difficult and almost seems like it's solving the issue when it never really does. And so when it comes to local newspapers, it's more than just the rise of Facebook and Google um, that are causing, issues, right? We see that um, there's a lot of services, a lot of um, things that these local newspapers did in the past that are now being done by other forums. And so uh, an example that comes to mind is Next door, which is a forum where people in the community can come together to talk about different issues, to share things going on, right? Um, and that's typically, that was say 20, 30 years ago, that was a service that was exclusively provided by local newsrooms. And so we see as things change as services move elsewhere, as people find easier ways to connect, local newsrooms also need to evolve and they, they need to find ways to remain relevant and useful within their communities. And I believe that they do have that place, but they need to have that opportunity to be able to look back and think, okay, what services were useful before that are not as useful now, which ones um, are important for the community? And let's start there. So I think the biggest thing that we need to talk about here is innovating for the future and a bill like this doesn't really help do that
0: you have one unheard message
1: and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker,
2: engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.
3: Yeah, Rachel Chu joining us. You touched on another big picture topic that got funneled into this particular issue, but it goes to the wider thing about, especially things like new media, like what we're doing right now, where we're talking, you know, for a program over the internet. You talked about this, that this is basically an extension of industrial policy. It's a bigger thing, but this is a great example of it where government changes really slowly and the law changes even slower. We're still applying a lot of old industrial policy to new technology, especially big tech. That's why you get terms like monopoly and antitrust that are just getting abused left, right, and center when it comes to online medium right now. You hear it over and over again. You highlighted that in your piece. Industrial policy is something that is very old in American law, but that's why you got to check. Does this violate a First Amendment issue? Does this violate regulation? Does this environment other things, Equality Act? That's really at the core of this. That's a bigger problem, but we need to talk about that. Is like we're still trying to use this old industrial policy stuff to new things and it doesn't really fit real well, does it?
4: No, not at all. Um, and I think a simple question that people should be asking is if the government is trying to fix a so-called market failure, well, what is that failure? Um what caused it, and is the government solution, quote unquote, is it actually going to be achieving what it's trying to do? And with all these sorts of economic policies that that we've seen where it's favoring one industry over another, it's a subsidy, I think these basic questions are where we should start to just see where is the problem what is the solution? And is the proposed solution, is it getting at that issue? Um, And those are very basic questions that um, people, I think, don't ask enough, especially when we see bills like this, where they're touted as just a catch-all solution to help solve this issue, right? And so, like, I don't think anyone is going to dispute that, local newsrooms do have value um, and that um, there is an issue with a lot of them closing down. So if we've identified that issue already, then now we need to think, well, what is the solution, right? And if the solution here is just transferring money over to them, profits over from one company to another, is that actually going to do something? Um, And in this case, the reason why I think a lot of these policies really fail is because they don't even achieve what they're intending to. So with the case of this California bill, because there is no regard for the size of the organization, they're not even helping local newsrooms. The the end result is actually going to be a lot like that law that was passed in 1970, which was also aimed at helping local newspapers where it just helps the largest news firms um, have more profits than they did the year before. And that that's not the intent of this. And I think what's even more insidious is that it's passed off as a solution and it, it makes it difficult then to explore the actual real solutions that can help the problem.
3: Yeah, Rachel Chu joining us. I'm not a lawyer, but I can see where there would be a First Amendment issue really, really fast with this scheme. Um, if you, anytime you make the government a go-between between one business and another, you're already getting into some territory where you definitely need some guardrails. When you get into the information and news business, and the government's going to be the gatekeeper of who gets what monetarily, especially between the tech companies which are consolidating, you've got a couple big ones right now, and they're going to dominate in any kind of rule like this. Let's just be adults here, and then these smaller firms. Boy, you start getting the government picking and choosing which which freedom of the press gets to be free and exist. I foresee that being a very big problem if this scheme were to go forward. Is that a fair concern to have?
4: I think so. And I think that's something that we should be talking about a lot more um, when it comes to these sorts of proposals. A lot of them tread closely. Well, they, a lot of them are an, antitrust bills. And so with that, uh, in this new wave of um, antitrust reform, we're seeing... Um, With a lot of proposals like this, we've seen one on the federal level that looks very similar called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which is still being considered right now. Um, We see that they are constantly just picking winners and losers. And that's something that I think as Americans, we should be very uncomfortable with. um, Just the fact that the government feels that um, they are in a position to do that um, and that that they can um, solve the market failures better um, than the free market can. Um, and so I think that we should be very wary, very skeptical um, when it comes to things like this, especially because they're drawing from other proposals, like you mentioned, elsewhere, international efforts to kind of do the same thing. And so um we should feel uncomfortable with that because we have a lot of freedoms, um, a lot of um, protections in the U.S. that other countries don't have, like you, you mentioned, the First Amendment. Um, and because other countries don't have that, when they're crafting their own um, pr- proposals that that look a lot like, like these, um, they're not really thinking about that. And so going back to the California bill, one of the things that um, the bill's author said um, when trying to reevaluate the Um, effectiveness of their proposal. They said that they want to look internationally to see what other countries have done. And when it comes to something like this, when it comes to um, our free market, our First Amendment rights, um, other countries aren't really going to be thinking about that and they're not respecting that. And meanwhile, we have our lawmakers who are drawing from those other proposals.
3: Yeah, Rachel, Chu joining us. You also touched on something right there is like, This is a state-level bill, of course. California's own constitution, their article, one of their constitution, has free press um, built into it. So it's going to run into a state constitutional problem in in addition to a U.S. constitutional problem. This feels to me like a problem, like a lot of complex problems. This should be more of an all-of-the-above kind of an answer than a one-size-fits-all, let's regulate it and fix it sort of thing look I'm not I wouldn't be a huge fan of it but there's multiple ways that if you wanted to do something at a local or a state level to do something about local media in your state or municipality or county commission or whatever the case may be, you could do it. you could set up you know tax breaks grants whatever and we could debate all those some other times. I'm just saying there's multiple things you could do. This seems like one of those shots at oh well let's take these two things big tech's a problem and local news is a problem. let's just smash them together and make a regulation. In my experience, that's almost the worst way to try to legislate something because now you got all these incongruent parts. You kind of called out one of the lawmakers here and said, look, you're and I'll quote you from is like, it's a safeguard against government intrusion to justify greater intervention. That's just there's no version of that that makes sense when you actually boil it down to what they're actually doing.
4: Exactly. Um, I was a little bit taken aback when I saw that. Um, She was mentioning the free press um, as justification um, for this bill because um, the First Amendment, um, the freedom of the the press, that's really a negative, right? It's saying that um, the government won't intrude. Right. And then meanwhile, she's using that as. Um, rationale to say hey this is why we need to have more government intervention and to me that that just seemed so confusing to me and how um, that could be the reasoning behind this and ultimately I think it goes back to another point that we we talked about of just people asking questions and really looking through these sorts of bills and saying like is this actually going to achieve what it's supposed to or is it really just a political tool right is it something to get at these, um, unpopular big tech companies? Is it—is it getting at um, the appeal of helping local newsrooms without actually doing it? Um, and that is, I think, the saddest part of all of this, where these proposals, time and time again, are being justified by something that seems very good because, again, everyone wants to see local newsrooms thrive, right? We don't want to see them shut down. But at the same time, now we have these proposals that aren't really going to address the issue at all and perhaps will just help the lawmakers earn political points, which in the end doesn't really help anyone.
5: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church and Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, Rachel,
3: you're joining us as a writer and somebody that. You know, does stuff with a local newspaper. I could see the problem immediately becoming well. If you're getting a, a, a supplement or a stipend or whatever you want to call it from the government, what, how, whatever form this takes, how are you going to do an investigation into that program being run? You know, how are you? You know, I can see all kinds of problems with that. We don't talk enough. Be- I'm guilty of it, too. We're all guilty. Of we just bash the media or the news media. I've tried to be real careful and stop saying the media. You need to break it up. There's broadcasters, investigative journalists. We need good journalists now more than ever with everything going on in the world. We need to just go back and have a basic understanding of what a free press really is, don't we? Like we? We've kind of butchered the First Amendment, especially with free speech, of like, oh, well, if I can't get on Facebook, my free—no, that's not what that means— we need to do that with the press too, don't we? And really go back to a base level understanding of what the press is. And then we can properly keep in the context when something like this happens where the government's stepping in of like, well, this is antithetical to what a free press actually is. Have we done good with educating the current generations on what a free press is in the digital age? Because I don't think we have.
4: I don't think so either. I think a lot of the things that we perceive as constitutional rights, sometimes sometimes those words, right, like free press, they just get co-opted to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. And this is um, an issue that the Supreme Court has had for, for many years in terms of what is a constitutional right, what's actually in the constitution and the bill of rights um and what's not right and oftentimes and i think a lot of people are guilty of this some it's just because they they are ignorant to it and they they just haven't learned it others i think are a little bit more willful about it in terms of saying that something is a constitutional right when it's not there and it's used to just justify some type of ideological position um so at the end of the day what is in the constitution is in there what isn't isn't right and so um when we justify proposals especially ideological ones on the basis of oh it is a constitutional right we should think about it a little bit and i think i think all of this comes down to we should just think about these issues a little bit more in terms of what we want to achieve uh what these proposals are actually saying and then if it's being justified by something very tenuous we should be able to question it um, and not see it as some absolute truth when it's not
3: Yeah, Rachel Chu. This goes to why you got to understand the fundamental principles involved because the technology. Can you imagine if they had done this law 25 years ago and it was written specifically that they had to prop up AOL online Mm -hmm. or CompuServe or pick whatever's fallen out of favor since then? If we start writing laws specifically to prop up newspapers and Facebook, now you've stunted whatever comes after Facebook. And I know we all got used to the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram era. Yeah, that's only about 15, 16, 17 years now. That's not a long time in the grand scheme of things. And there'll be something after that that we don't know about yet. That's why you focus on the principles when you do legislation and especially regulation, because you don't know the next thing coming. And it usually blindsides you like when the smartphone came out and the iPhone came out. And everything, within a year and a half, two years, everything changed. That's why this is the sort of stuff you kind of want to go slow on and keep those first principles of like freedom of press, freedom of speech centered, isn't it?
4: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think something to keep in mind here as well is America has been a country of technological growth, innovation, right? Perhaps uh, much more than many other of uh, the other countries that have proposed bills like this or, you know, elsewhere who have um, really stifled the innovation within their own countries. And when we see proposals like this, we really should think about that because um, I think oftentimes people take for granted um, just how much progress and innovation we've had in this country, especially on the technology and internet front over the past few years, um, and that's by no accident. And if the government tries to intervene in ways um, that are very antithetical to that, we may see down the line that perhaps there are technologies and innovations that we won't be able to achieve, we won't be able to realize as a country. And that to me is pretty concerning, especially when we think about the role that technology uh, plays in a uh, competitive context in terms of um, competing with other countries. And so we need to really think, I think, when uh, we talk about technology and um, government intervention, government reforms, um, we should be very skeptical and we should be, um, I think, a little bit on guard.
3: Yeah, Rachel shoot tell us about being on guard on that. You did the research on this. The California bill looks like it's probably stalled at least for this legislative session or at least until the first of the year. The federal one, like let's be honest, we got an election year coming up. There's not going to be a whole lot of electoral anything in the US Congress going on for the next 18 months or so. But this is something that's going to keep popping up every so often, kind of on that second or third level of news down under the headlines somewhere. Do exactly what you just said. Give people a couple of things to watch out for. So when they see something in the news headlines, maybe buried down in a story somewhere of, oh, this is that about this again. And they can come back to the story again and know that this is because this is going to come up over and over and over again, isn't it? Mm -hmm.
4: Yes. So on the federal level, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act has been around for a few years and it keeps getting uh, re-upped and proposed again. Um, So that's something that I think people should watch. Um, I think that the hearings um, in which uh, senators have talked about this bill are very telling because we see opposition on both sides. Um, And the concerns are very similar in which that uh, this bill is very intrusive, um, that it won't accomplish its goals. Um, And I was actually very pleased to hear folks on the left also saying that as well. And so I think anytime the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act comes back up, people should be watchful and see uh, what senators and uh, uh, what they're really saying about this. Um, And then I think the other term to watch out for in an international context is link tax, um, because that's, basically what these proposals are. Um, They go by different names, but ultimately they are um, a link tax. And so um, I think people should watch out for for that as well. We see um, these types of um, bills coming up in a lot of other countries, and I think it's worth seeing what happens with those. Um, And then I would also add just one caution, um, which is I think that it's often portrayed as something that would just get at big tech. And we see these sensational headlines of Meta threatening to pull out, you know, uh, news in X country because of this bill. And I think those types of things miss the point because it, it kind of, paints it as, oh, it's just a big tech issue when it's really more than that. It's a really substantial economic issue. Um, So I would add that caution, um, but I would say that people should be very watchful um, of these types of proposals because they really aren't going anywhere.
3: Yeah, and this is where you need to be consuming overseas news as well. Good, solid overseas news, BBC, Sky, CBC, things like this. The EU has been doing this. I think they first tried theirs in 2018 or so, and they've been fighting back and forth on it. Canada's is looking at a one that's even more restrictive than the EU one right now. That stuff matters here because those things bleed over. We live in a global economy, whether you like it or not. Pay attention to that stuff. You'll probably see it coming that way before you see it on the US news. Rachel Chu, great to finally have you here. First of all, we've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Glad we got to talk about this. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you have going on, and how they can follow you until we get you back on Hurtel again. And it'll be a lot faster next time than the you know year or so we've been trying to do it. Uh-huh.
4: Yes, so I'm on Twitter at Rachel H Chu, um, and I'm writing a lot more about this issue and many others um, in the tech policy world. Uh, so stay tuned.
3: Yeah, love having you. Thank you so much for the information. We're going to link to all her stuff and to the whole piece in Real Clear Markets. A couple of links in there. You're going to need to click through to read the background. Make sure you do that. Rachel Chu, so great having you. Thank you, ma'am.
4: Thanks so much.
3: Going back to Hurt let's end on a good note. Uh, Guy Fieri bought a pig. No, seriously, the celebrity chef, who I like. He's not everybody's flavor, pun intended, but I I like him. He's had a few issues here and there, but he's also uh, done a lot of charity work. He's raised his family. I find him entertaining. I'm a big Food Network guy. I like Guy Fieri. Just If it's not your cup of tea, fine, change the channel. However, he does a lot of charity work in his hometown in Northern California, including at the fair let's go to the um the press democrat out of forestville uh six-year-old jet trap was so excited about going on the rides at the sonoma county fair he was almost wiggling out of his wheelchair i want to ride 4580 rides he declared adding and 100 million 45 80, and i want to ride on the tractor good goals young man but as soon as the sun rose hot overhead at midday Saturday, Mom Claire Tripp told the impatient first grader the carnival would have to wait. There was an important job Big Brother Jackson had to do. Before he and his four siblings could cut loose at the fair, and it was all for Jet. It was one of the most important challenges the Goldridge 4-H member had ever undertaken in his 10 years, hitting the pig barn at 7 a.m. He had to feed water, give a last bath, fondle the ears, and say goodbye to Peppa and Daddy Pig before leading the two hogs more than a combined 500 pounds of bacon. That's not true, by the way. The bacon's just the belly, but you know, sloppy journalism. What are you going to do? Out to face a crowd of bidders and Fairs Jury Junior Livestock Auction on Friday. There were a few tears, but the emotions of parting with the pigs Jackson had devoted himself to for the four months gave way to concentration, pride, and determination on Saturday, as he went through the last-minute tasks to ready the hogs for market. His goal was to fetch a gavel-busting price, not for his own bank account to raise money for research to help find a cure for the rare and life-threatening genetic disease that had made Jet's life so difficult, his little brother. Lively and chattering spitfire compared to his quiet older brother, Jet has so far gone through more surgeries and medical procedures than most people will experience in a lifetime, including already having had stem cell transplants when he was two, and there's many more surgeries to come. Jackson his sister June and twins Tyler and Tess have watched Jet bravely meet his setbacks without losing his good humor and energy for life. He's recovering now from a double hip replacement and two knees. This kid's six years old, already had a double hip replacement and two knee plates. God bless him. Want to help my brother, said Jackson, a member of the Gold Ridge 4-H and a man of few words. I love him. It was Jackson's first animal entry at the fair, and waiting can be a long and tense with 265 hogs up for auction over the course of the day. But when Jackson stepped up to the show pen by 1.30, bidding went furious and fast. And is now smudged with a muck white FAA pants and his green 4-H tie, he walked out of the ring nearly $10,000 richer. He has pledged half of his earnings to the National MPS Society. That's the disease MPS one also known as Hurler Syndrome, that his brother's stricken with. The genetic disease is progressive and characterized by a lack of critical enzymes that leads to a buildup of toxins in the cells and organs and cascade of serious health problems. Children born with it have short life expectancies. But Jackson wants a cure before that happens to Jet. When the bidding stopped for Peppa Pig, a white, almost pink Landris, weighing in at 247 pounds, had fetched $5,000. And Daddy Pig, a black Berkshire pig, tipping the scales at 265, brought in 4850 It's hard to put into words how proud I am, said Mom Claire, who also participated in forage growing up in Forestville. That was far above the average of $3,000 for the hogs sold at the junior livestock auction. Jackson declared he wasn't nervous. It was fun, he said. The heady moments when Judy Sears at the Sierra Ranch in Sonoma Valley pushed Peppa up to $5,000, and TV personality and local philanthropist Guy Fieri stepped in to claim Daddy Pig for a bid of $4,850. Fieri is a big booster of the junior livestock auction, bidding on some nine different hogs on Saturday. He came by the pig barn earlier in the day and met Jackson, let him know he had his support. A longtime Sonoma County resident and restaurateur. Knows what it's like to have a sick sibling. His younger sister, Morgan, died more than 10 years ago of cancer. This is Fieri talking, quote, A lot of kids can't put it together, but all of a sudden he knows his brother has a big problem and he's going to do something about it. What kids of that age do that, said Fieri, who stopped by to greet Jackson after the auction, whispered some words of encouragement and a fist bump. Takes a lot to raise an animal, especially to raise two of them and to train them and to be ready to go into the pen with them. I met Jackson and he was a great guy. And I wasn't going to let him, meaning Daddy Pig, go for anything less than five grand. I was hoping somebody was going to take it to the roof. Food Network star said he'll donate the hog to Redwood Gospel Mission, which feeds the hungry. The Traps family roots go back 50 years in Forestville. They live in Canyon Rock Quarry, where Jackson's dad, Jonathan, worked along his father on the land first settled by their great-grandfathers in the 1970s. It offered ample ground for Jackson to raise hogs, which were only about 50 to 60 pounds when he took him under their wing. Claire Trapp said Jackson and the whole family are doing what they can to raise money and awareness for a disease they had never heard of before Jet was born, and it's an up race. Raising money is not all Jackson does for his brother, Claire said. He's been there all the way, cleaning up messes. He helps him with diapers and draw blood. All the things that shouldn't be required of a kid, he just does it. Every Christmas, they make a list, Graham said. This is his aunt. At the bottom of the list, it's always a cure for Jet. Guy Fieri also posted pictures of him with jackson and the hog uh he pledged ten thousand dollars also to this cause and also sent out a link on twitter to this story i just read along with the information if you want to donate to this family we're going to put all those links in the Substack notes and also on the show notes for everybody except for you folks on itunes because itunes doesn't let us do links for some reason but that's the good news for today. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. Make sure you're following us on that Substack, Herdtell.substack.com. Free subscription. Pop in your email and you're done. Everything we do from writing to herd tell to media appearances will go right into your inbox every time we do something. It's a great way to keep up with us. Herdtelshow twitter.com. Also, Show at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. However, you're listening, make sure you're subscribing, make sure you click and follow and share and like all of those good things. The YouTube channel is up, Hertel Show on YouTube. We appreciate y'all greatly. So, then we see you next time, wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.